For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, Because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, Because I am not an eye, excuse because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable, and on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. May God bless the reading of his word. Turn in your Bibles to John chapter 21. John chapter 21. It says this. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he had said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to him to show him by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. 
Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following him, and the one who had been reclining at the table close to him, and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, If it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die, yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this text. I thank you for the gospel of John as a whole. Lord, I thank you for this beautiful ending to the gospel. Lord, you not only died and rose from the dead, that is certainly the essential part of the gospel. You not only call us to believe in that gospel, Lord, you also give us the task. I pray, Lord, that we would be submissive to you, that we would learn from your word today. In your name, amen. amen. <clears throat> today is our final sermon out of the Gospel of John. It has been exactly one year. Uh, this day, Sunday, next week, would have been the first day that we would have started with the Gospel of John. It has been an honor and a privilege to, to uh, walk through this gospel with you. I've learned so much. I hope you have as well. Um, starting here forward, we're going to be working our way into the, into the book of Proverbs. So I look forward to that. I do want to encourage you on the front end, uh, start reading Proverbs. Um, it's not a very long book. Um, one thing many people I know, many people may have already have this habit of reading through a proverb every day. There's 31 Proverbs, so it makes easy when you have 31 days in a month uh, to read one, one every day. I would encourage you to take a step further and pray through a chapter a day. Not just read it, but to go back through, reflect on it, ask how the Lord would have you apply those different truths. And as we walk through the, the book of Proverbs together, I pray that, 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 uh, that we will have, uh, that our minds will be shifted and we'll, we'll grow together. Uh, coming back to the Gospel of John, however, We've seen that this right here, chapter 21, forms an epilogue to the gospel. It's kind of a way to end it. We've kind of saw the official, I guess, the official ending um, would have been at the end of chapter 20 where John states the purpose of the book. And then chapter 21 is kind of what we would see maybe as, a, as, a, um, as an application, if you will. Uh, John 1 through 20, John 1 started out introducing who Jesus is in all of his eternal glory. In 1, 1 through 18. In 19 and following, we got to see the ministry of Jesus, starting with his baptism and moving forward. And we got to see him minister. We got to see him work miracles. We saw him die. We saw him raised to life, showing that he is indeed the Son of God. And then chapter 20 ended up with this statement. It said, this, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and believing you may have life in his name. So the call of the gospel is that we might believe in Jesus. The call of the gospel of John, the call of the gospel in general, is that we might believe. So then you might ask the question, okay, I believe, so now what? 
Well, last week we looked at Jesus invited his disciples to join in on the mission that he already was on. The mission that we saw throughout the gospel, the mission of God, the mission of the Father to save the nations. Jesus enacted that mission through his own death and resurrection. And then he invites the disciples to join in him with that mission. And then here, um, Jesus moves from a more general calling to some more specific callings, to on the, more on an individual level. We're going to see three major truths that will, that will come out of this passage. Uh, certainly, and I don't want to belittle this at all, um, uh, this is definitely the restoration of Peter. We'll address that here shortly. But we've already talked about that. If you remember back when we saw Peter first run into these issues, and we saw first, uh, back in, even back in chapter 13, we saw how Peter would, would fall down and we, we, you know, he would, he would uh, make this uh, crash in chapter 18 and then he would be restored here in chapter 21. I will definitely address that. Uh, however, I we'll want to focus on some other aspects of the text today. First, we'll see that love for the church is a necessary subset of the love of love for Jesus. Secondly, we'll see that following Christ is costly. And third, we will see that every disciple has a unique calling. So starting out, we see then in verses 15 through 17, we see that love for the church is a necessary subset of love for Jesus. And we'll unpack this as we walk through the text. Uh, first of all, we have here Jesus, just as, just as uh, we were, uh, as, as Amber explained, Jesus here asked John three questions. He asked him the exact same question three times. Now, again, this isn't because Peter is stupid necessarily. Uh, by this time, we've already seen the disciples have a better understanding. They really know who Jesus is now. But if you remember back to chapter 18, what happened by a charcoal fire? Three times, Peter denied the Lord. And here we have, as we looked at last week, they're sitting and having breakfast around a charcoal fire. The charcoal fire comes back into place, and what does Jesus do? He tells Peter, I'm not done with you yet. Yes, you denied me. Yes, you, you did that. But I'm not done with you. And that alone, we could stop and close our Bibles and move on from here. That alone is a sermon in itself. You may have messed up just like Peter did, but God is not done with you. He wants to restore you and use you for his purposes, to use you for the gospel. But that's not the only thing we see out of this particular section. Let's look a little bit deeper at the questions Jesus asks and how Peter responds. And look at this interchange for a second here. First question John asked, or Jesus asks John, or asked, uh, asked Peter, it says here, verse 15, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Peter, now most scholars, just to kind of give you a visual here, most scholars kind of describe that what's probably taking place here is maybe Peter and John started taking a walk down the beach. Remember, they're at the lake, at, at, a, at a lake right now, and, and they are, they're taking a walk down by, by, the, by the lake, and perhaps, uh, perhaps the disciples are following close behind, but at this moment, we have an intimate scene between Jesus and, and Peter, and they're discussing things. So they're, maybe they're walking down a beach. Maybe they're still sitting at the, at the, at the, uh, around the fire. We're not exactly sure. It says, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Well, it's an interesting question. 
In fact, uh, at the front of this, this is a vague question to say the least. For the interpreter, these what? Who's these? Who, what, what are you talking about? Do you love me more than these? These what? So um, let's, let's try to address this question. We, we may ask, is he talking about fishing? Right? They just got done fishing. Do you love me more than you love fishing? Right? Maybe some of us need to ask that question of ourselves as well. Right? I don't think that's exactly what Jesus is getting at here. Uh, he never actually rebukes Peter or the disciples for fishing. He never tells them, you shouldn't be fishing. You should be doing this instead. He never tells them that. Rather uh, than it, So then it, it seems unlikely that he's asking him if you love him more than he, love, he, than, than he loves fishing or his job or whatever else you may, may think of there. Next, maybe some people have suggested that maybe he's asking if his love for Jesus is greater than the love that the other disciples have for Jesus. Do you love me more than they love me? Now again, it would seem that that would be an awkward interpretation. For it seems that I mean, we, we saw when uh, the disciples, we've seen before in the Gospels where the disciples excuse me, are arguing over who is the greatest in the kingdom, right? And Jesus says, whoever is least among you will be the greatest, right? So Jesus has, there's no place in the kingdom of God for comparing people. Like, do you love me more than they love me? Because we need you to step it up a little bit, right? The goal here is not to compare yourself to others. So then the, the thrust of the question must be that he is asking if he loves Jesus more than he loves the other disciples, do you love me more than you love those guys? Remember, Jesus has told them, you, if you want to love me, that'll be seen by your love for one another. So it's not wrong for Peter to love the other disciples. Rather, the problem would be is if he elevates them above his Lord. And this is the question Jesus is addressing, the, the issue Jesus is addressing here uh, with this particular question. Um. So then, then we have the, another question, then how does Peter respond? He says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Then Jesus asks him the same thing two more times. Do you love me? He says, of course, you know I love you. Now there's an, an intricacy that you don't see in the English. Uh, some of your English translations maybe have tried to deal with this. There's a different Greek word that's used for love. Now we're going to address this here in a second. I've heard, I've heard other preachers before uh, try to make a really big deal about this. Um, and, and, and I'm not going to make a super big deal about this, so I'm sorry to disappoint you. If you're getting to this passage, like, I can't wait for the pastor to say this, right? I'm not going to do it, right? So there's a difference between the words here. There's the word agape, which means love, and the word phileo, which means love, the two Greek words there. Jesus, in his question, he asked Peter every time, do you agape me? And Peter responds, yes, Lord, I phileo you, Okay. Now, again, the oftentimes there's a distinction that's tried to be made that between agape as this unselfish uh, God-type love versus phileo, which is more just like a friend love. Like, you know, like if I love my, love my buddies, you know, my friends from college, if I tell them I love you, the way I mean that, right, as opposed to maybe the way I would tell my wife that I love her. But there's a distinction there. Um, now, at this point in, in, in the Greco-Roman world, the, the, the way the Greek language was, they were pretty much synonymous terms. Yes, there could be some distinctions there. However, there's also other places where uh, John has used these so interchangeably throughout the gospel. There's other places in the New Testament where uh, agape is not always used to define the type of love God has. 
Um, there's other there's other ways to to show that this. So these these words are pretty much just synonyms. So if we were to think of this, then uh, in the actual conversation itself, it's really just saying love and love and love and love, right? It's just the same thing. They're just synonymous terms. So like the some translations will say, "Do you truly love me?" versus "Oh yeah, I love you." No, but you do you truly love me? That's really not the thrust of what's going on here. Really, this it, it's pretty dull. Right? That's kind of, that kind of makes for a boring sermon, right? We just mean the same thing. Like, come on! Where's all the cool, the cool nugget I can tell people about, you know? That now I know my Bible really well and I can use a Greek word. Sorry, it doesn't help you in this particular case. However, if you are reading the text, if, if, if you are reading the text and you run across that there's a difference in these words, that would be striking, would it not? Wouldn't it hit you a little bit off kilter? Like, wait, why is there a different word here? So really, the difference in words has nothing to do with the conversation they are having. More, it has something to do with how the reader is supposed to perceive this. Okay? So for the reader, this becomes a a pretty major distinction here. And really, the the, the application, I guess, that we get out of this for the reader, the reader is left with a challenge. So just the way this, just to back up for a second, Jesus asks, do you agape me? Peter says, yes, I phileo you. Then Jesus says, do you agape me? Peter says, yes, I phileo you. And then Jesus switches and says, do you phileo me? And then Peter says, yes, I phileo you, right? So uh, in one sense, Jesus changes his verb, which is probably why we also can see this, probably just synonymous terms, right? Um, But the reader is left to say, I want the kind of love that Jesus has. Right? Jesus keeps using this other word. That's the kind of love I want to strive for, the kind of love that Christ has. That's, so that's really, that's, that's about the most we can get out of this distinction of the words, is that the reader then is, is, is asked to or is, is, is caused to say, I want to love like Jesus loves. Right? Now, again, it's not necessarily a condescension or, or Jesus lowering his standard for Peter by the end here. But the reader is still drawn up to this higher, to a higher love in some way, shape, or form, a, a Christ-like love. There's also a shift here. Jesus, Jesus uh, changes his language here a little bit. Um, uh, the way he responds to Peter, Peter then says, yes, of course, I love you. And then all three times, Jesus gives a commission, right? He says, feed my lambs. Then he says, tend or shepherd my sheep, and then he says, feed my sheep, right? So he's changing the words there again in this, in this, in this commission. Really then, the, the, the change in words it sh- it is to show the scope, the broad scope of the mission that Peter is being sent on. Now again, Peter is being called at this point to pastor the church, essentially, we see, Pastor, or we see Peter in Acts chapter 2. He preaches the very first sermon for the church, right? We see, uh, so Peter is com- being commissioned. He is being called to pastor the church. But notice what it says here. Jesus says, feed whose lambs? Whose sheep? Mine. Feed my sheep. Are they Peter's sheep? No. Some people will read this text and say, oh, see, Jesus is making Peter to be the first pope, right? No, he's not elevating Peter to some sort of high standard as much as calling him and saying, take care of my sheep, be a pastor, right? He's not calling him to be a pope in that sense. Now, I want to share with you, what does this mean then? So he calls 
Peter to be a pastor, to be an under-shepherd. Remember, Jesus is the good shepherd. See, Peter is called to be an under-shepherd like every single pastor is an under-shepherd. Let's look at how Peter, later on in his life, describes this ministry that he has. In 1 Peter chapter 5, let me read this real quickly. It says, So I exhort the elders among you, pastors, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief priest, or the chief, sorry, when the chief shepherd, the good shepherd, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Close yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Peter then sees this commission. What does it mean to shepherd the flock? It's to not draw people to anger, right? Not to, not to be a pastor that would be domineering and trying to, trying to uh, you know, get his way all the time. That's how he sees the pastoral ministry. Paul as well will, will follow this up and will give another similar charge to a pastor. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, the apostle Paul tells Timothy what he is to do as a pastor. Uh, beginning in verse 1, it says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing in his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching but have itching ears. Having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teaching to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, enduring suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. We see just in these two short passages the breadth of what it is to be a pastor. Right? And this is what Peter is specifically called to, to this ministry of pastoring. If you desire to be a pastor, I would encourage you, 1 Peter 5 and 2 Timothy 4, I would encourage you to memorize those passages. They're so vital to ministry. But there's another interesting aspect, not just for pastors. And I could go on for an entire sermon just about that. It's such a, a packed message, a packed uh, section here. But what is Peter called to do? He says, it, Jesus asks him, do you love me? Right? And Peter says, yes, you know that I love you. And what does Jesus call him to do? to feed the sheep, to shepherd the sheep, take care of them, love them. Love for the church is a necessary subset of love for Jesus. Put this, putting this another way, if you love Jesus, you must love his church. There's not an option here. An essential part of loving Jesus is loving the church. For me as a pastor, as well as for you, the harsh reality is that if we do not love the church, we do not love Jesus. Don't. Isn't that what Jesus is saying? 
Do you love me? Yes, of course I love you, Jesus. Then do something about it. Feed the sheep. Shepherd the sheep. Take care of God's people. Love God's people. Jesus has said this before. You know how people are going to know that you love me? By the way that you love one another. To give you some illustration here, to put some legs to this, when I was in college, um, I did not have the same love for the church that I have now. Uh, I was not, not making this as an excuse, but I was going to a church that I didn't have any respect for the pastor, um, and I didn't know anywhere else to go. I was on college, and the church was right next to the college, and that's just where I had gone. And so I got into this habit of just sleeping in on Sundays, right? And then beat my friends. I would show up at lunch, and my friends would be like, hey, what happened? You know, like, how come you weren't at church today? Like, oh, yeah, I, I didn't, I didn't, I forgot to wake up or, you know, try to make some excuse. But really, that was sin. Because I did not love the church, therefore I did not love Jesus. Now, I'm not saying that I have to love that particular church. But God gave us the church for a reason. There was a time, let me kind of flesh this out a little bit more. There was a time when I thought the Christian life was for me to live on my own. Scripture corrected that thinking, showing that we are meant to live in community with one another. There was a time when I thought baptism was merely a personal action. Then Scripture showed me that it is by nature a church function, an important part of commitment to one another and to Christ in the church. Today, by his grace and by the direction of his word, one of my favorite areas of theology, and this is true, one of my favorite areas of theology is learning about what God designed the church to be. So let's think about this. We must first remember that the church is not a building. When I say we need to love the church, I'm not saying love these walls, love this carpet, love these pews. It's not what I'm saying. Please hear me. I'm not saying that that means I love the church, therefore I need to make sure I take care of the facilities. Now again, we should. God gave it to us, we should. But that is, this, these, these facilities are only a tool. They are only something that the church uses. The church is the people. Specifically, we must consider our own local church. What must we love about the church? What should we love? Right? If Jesus tells us we must love the church and to love the church is to love me, what must we love? We must love her purity. 1 Corinthians 5, Peter tells about a really, really regrettable situation where a man was having an affair with his stepmother. And, what is, and do you remember what Paul says to the church in Corinth? He says, get rid of the guy. Deliver him up to Satan. You can't keep him there. The church must be pure. We must love the purity of the church. We must take that seriously, as seriously as Paul took that. We must love the church's correction. Matthew chapter 18, Jesus gives some instructions on what to do when there is dissension, when there is conflict in the church. Sometimes that means that the church makes a decision that somebody needs to be corrected. A sinful response to that correction would be to say, well, who, who are you to tell me what to do? A loving, a, a biblical response would be to say, thank you for helping me walk in godliness. I need to repent of that sin. We must love her, uh, we must love her growth, and I don't mean her numerical growth. I mean her spiritual growth. In Ephesians chapter 5, 
Paul tells us that one of the goals of the church is that we grow to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Anything less than that, and we have not reached our goal yet, which means we never will. We must love to see our church grow spiritually. We must love that. We must desire that. We must love the church's health. Is she doctrinally sound? Is there biblical preaching? Do we share the gospel? Do we have biblical leadership? Do we have healthy membership? If we are to love the church, we are to love its health. Love for the church is synonymous with love for Jesus. It is a subset of it, but it is still something that if we love Jesus, we must love his church. Secondly, we see that following Christ is costly. So we'll go a little bit quicker here. Following Christ is costly. Verse 18 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you were old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. And then John explains, the Gospel of John, the narrator explains this he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Peter is told here that following Jesus, following him is going to cost him his life, literally. Not just in a figurative sense of giving up all to serve Jesus, that he's telling Peter right here, you will be killed for following me. Then he says, follow me. Isn't that kind of bizarre? Imagine if somebody come to you, you know what? I want you to become a Christian, but here's the thing. You're going to die. You're going to be killed for Jesus. Most of us probably be like, okay, I'm out then. I'm not doing that. Right? Jesus says, Peter, you are going to die. In fact, tradition tells us the phrase here, you will, your arms will be stretched out, that is almost in the, in the ancient world at this time, that unanimously means to be crucified. And, and, and tradition tells us that what happened at the end of Peter's life, he was told to reject Christ or die by crucifixion. And he said, I will not die the way Christ died for me. Crucify me upside down. Peter didn't run away from the calling of Jesus. He didn't run away from following him. He went right toward it, knowing that it was going to happen. Knowing that he would die by crucifixion, he still went forward. He gives the same, give Jesus' calling then is the same exact calling he gave Peter in, in chapter 1. Follow me. His call does not change, but certainly at this point, Peter's understanding has changed. Praise God. His obedience to death also brought glory to God. Look at this in verse 19. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. This goes completely against what we're told in our culture, right? You listen to health, wealth, and prosperity gospel type preachers. They would say, God, will glorify, God is glorified when you are rich. God is glorified when you are healthy. John says, God is glorified when you give up everything to serve him. And you give up everything for the gospel. Nearly every one of the disciples died. John is the only one who died of natural causes. Many in the early centuries of Christianity died 
endured persecution and many, many died. There are people today in countries who still give up their lives for Christ. Yet as we saw this morning in the video with Dr. Platt, there are many people all over the world who do not know Christ. Yet for many of us, we are content to just sit in our padded pews. Christ died on a cross for our sin, yet we never consider that Christ told us also to take up our cross daily and follow him. Following Jesus is not about my comfort. Following Jesus is about following him to whatever end he calls me to. Following Christ is costly. And finally, we see this morning that every disciple has a unique calling. Look at this. Peter, again, just when you think Peter's about to get it, right? Messes up again. Look at this. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following him. Remember, they're probably walking down the beach at this point. And he goes, well, what about him? Right? Jesus just told him, hey, guys, follow me. Right? Follow me. And it's going to take you right to death. And he's sitting here thinking, well, what's going to happen to him? Come on, Peter. Are you serious right now? Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. The one who had been reclining at the table close to him and said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? This, remember, we've seen Peter and the beloved disciple. have been having this tension all the way since chapter 13. They've been talking to each other. They've been in, almost so, in some sense in competition with one another. And here we have Peter st- coming to a final place where this, fi- this relationship is finally going to be resolved. When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, I love Jesus' response here. If it's my will that he remain until I come, what's that to you? You follow me. In other words, Jesus says, don't worry about him. That's none of your business, right? It's none of your business what's going to happen to him. What matters is are you going to follow him? But how often do we do this very same thing? You know what? I'll share the gospel when somebody else shares the gospel. I'll do that when they do that. And Jesus here says, don't worry about that. You serve the Lord. Peter is told to follow Jesus no matter what the other disciples do. And John tells us, this is interesting, Jesus had said this, and apparently over time some uh, rumors got spread. Look at how John addresses this. This is the saying spread abroad among the brothers, that this disciple was not to die. <laughs> Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but that it is my will that he, if it is my will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? In other words, what had been going on at this time, just to give some explanation, people were like, well, Jesus said he's going to live forever. Right? And here John is saying, guys, that's not what Jesus said. Right? Now, uh, there is actually a, a belief system that still believes that John is still alive today. Mormons teach that, G- John is, that John the Evangelist, this guy is still alive today because of this passage. Right? Now, I would ask, if John is still alive, how come he hasn't gone to your church and said, hey, guys, listen to this guy. Listen to these Mormons. They're right. Right? Even if he was alive, he wouldn't. Okay? But he's not. Look at John. John even says, guys, it's not what Jesus said. He said, if it was my will for him never not to die until I come back, what is that to you? John is saying, guys, I'm completely mortal. Don't worry. I'm not going to live forever. I'm going to die. Right? This is probably written late in the first century. John is probably in his 90s right now. He's probably feeling it pretty heavy. 
right? I know I'm going to die. It's going to happen pretty soon. I'm not feeling like a spring chicken anymore, right? He knows that his mortality is soon. But then look at this. Verse 24, then John shifts and talks about this. He says, this is the disciple, this disciple whom Jesus loved. He says, this guy is the one who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things. And we know that his testimony is true. John says, that guy that's the disciple whom Jesus loved, it's the guy writing this to you right now. Right? This is eyewitness testimony. We can trust this because it is eyewitness testimony. John is also showing that he is fulfilling his calling. The purpose of writing this gospel was to show is what so, was so that we might believe. John has believed and it has changed his life. In that way, he is the ideal disciple because he is the ideal reader. Right? He reads this gospel and he has believed in Jesus Christ and here he is serving to the end of his days. And, he's, and this, is what, this is why Je, the, the beloved disciple is, is almost in some sense raised up in the gospel. It's only because he's the ideal responder to the gospel. Only because of what Christ has done. And secondly, we see another part of his calling that he fulfills here is that he faithfully writes this gospel. He does it. Just like Paul, Peter's calling was to lead the sheep, to tend the sheep, to shepherd the flock, to love God's people. As a pastor, John's calling is different than his. But what does Jesus say? Basically, there's no, it doesn't matter. Don't worry about what his calling is. Worry about your calling. Every single one of us has a unique calling, whatever that calling may be. And then finally, in verse 25, look what John says here. There are also many other things Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, he speaks of it hyperbolically at this point, were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that could be written. He says, Jesus did lots of other stuff besides this. What matters is what I wrote. That's the stuff that I wanted to tell you about. And if we wanted to say more about Jesus, the world would be filled with books. Let me tell you right now, I don't know how many books have been written about Jesus. I know there's a lot. And there's tons more that are printed every single year. There are probably millions of books that have been written about Jesus. Some good, some not so good. He's right. There's so much that Jesus did that the world could be filled with the books, with books about it. Almost as if this prophecy was fulfilled. This hyperbole became truth to an extent. Because Jesus is the Son of God. He is worthy of that. We see here then, though, that, that we see that every single believer, every single disciple has a unique calling. God may not have called you to be the pastor of a church. God may not have called you to be a missionary full time. But he has given you a calling. And whatever that calling is, what Jesus says is the same thing he told Peter. Follow me. It may cost you everything, but follow me. Are you doing what Christ has called you to do? Are you being obedient to his calling? Are you following him? Maybe today you're here and you're not a believer. You've heard some of these different things we've talked about, 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 about Jesus' death and resurrection. You know that you've never believed that. We have an opportunity here coming up where you can, uh, you can make that decision. 
Again, every one of us has a unique calling. As we saw in our scripture reading this morning, every single person in this church is part of the body of this church. Not only has God gifted you specifically to do what you have, he has called you to do, but you are an essential aspect of this church. Because imagine how the body would function without one of its members. It doesn't function right, does it? If you're missing a toe, even though it seems like it's just a toe, your balance is gone. If you're missing a finger, grabbing stuff becomes difficult. If you're missing your hair, right? Amen. <laughs> right, it may not be as fun as it used to be, right? You may not look as cool. You don't have the Fonzie do anymore that I'm sure you had, right? Whatever it is, God has given you, as a part of this church, he's given you a specific calling and a specific responsibility. Are you being obedient? Are you following Jesus with that calling? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for this opportunity to look at your word. Lord, I thank you that you restored Peter. But even more, Lord, I also thank you that you restored me. That you brought this dead man to life. And Lord, you've given him a calling. Lord, I thank you that everyone who is here who is a believer, you have called them and raised them back to life. Pray, Lord, that we would be obedient to the calling that you've given us, that when you've said, follow me, Lord, that we would say, yes, Lord, even to death. Pray this all in your name. Amen.